faces conflict at home, at work, in the community, in the world. Fix Your Conflicts is a show about how to fix those conflicts with practical tips and techniques. Doug Knoll brings to the internet airwaves the first of its kind, a show that teaches peaceful resolution to life's daily battles. That's Fix Your Conflicts with Doug Knoll, broadcasting live every Monday at 11 a.m. Pacific on World Talk Radio Studio A. Answer the president's call to service. As an AmeriCorps member, I know that Americans everywhere are helping each other, showing strength of character. As a senior corps volunteer, I know that Americans are showing kindness and compassion. As an AmeriCorps member, I see plenty of American spirit and enthusiasm. Together, we make America strong. Together, we make America great. Find out how you can serve at nationalservice.org. It's your world. It's your chance to make it better. Apply online at nationalservice.org. The world is talking. World Talk Radio, Studio A. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from my office in the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University here on a rainy Friday in 2008, September 2008. In fact, it's the middle of uh, Tropical Storm Hannah, or perhaps Hurricane Hannah. By the time uh, the show is over, we'll know more about it. But it's pouring rain outside, and I'm full of concern because I can't go pick up my daughter, uh, whose school is a few blocks away due to the show we're doing at this moment. So I hope she can make it through the rain here to the building safely. I'm sure she will, but she'll be wet and angry when she gets here. We'll deal with that when it happens. In the meantime, we go forward, uh, legally speaking, not on behalf of East Carolina University and its awesome uh, pirate football team that won its first game of the year this season, but rather on my own. And likewise, the guest speaks for himself, not for me or the university. Uh, Before saying more about our guest, I apologize for getting the title wrong in the introduction. The title of the book is Three Days in the Shenandoah, it takes place not in July, uh, but earlier in 1862. The subtitle is actually Stonewall Jackson at Front Royal and Winchester. Uh, and I should have gotten that right. I was caught by surprise because we have new telephones here at the uh, history department. And I was able to put mine on the speaker setting and attend to some other details. And then suddenly I was uh, the show was beginning and I, I frantically was snatching up the handset and, and grabbing for the book and everything got flustered. So the introduction was not what our guest deserved and I apologize for that. Uh, 
So we move forward with uh, uh, looking out the window at the ever-increasing rain. Uh, that's going to be one wet 12-year-old is going to arrive mid-show today. But in the meantime, let's move back into 1862 and uh, our uh, topic for today. Our guest, as I said uh, in the introduction, is Gary uh, Eckel Barger. Am I pronouncing that right, Gary? Oh, yes, you are, Jerry. Um, oh, well, your name's probably a little more difficult than mine. <laughs> from it, it, it's, a, it, it's happened. I've had my name mispronounced once or twice, and I'm, I'm still same year. Still enraged, but I've, I've learned to live with it. And I have um, no issue with the title, because I don't think I heard you misspeak it the first time, so <laughs> you could have no. got away with it before. <laughs> well, that's good. Well, there, there are some <laughs> listeners out there. I'm, I'm aware of that. I know my mother is one of them, and there are probably several. Actually, we know from the reports there are thousands of others. Over time, they don't listen live necessarily, but they pick up later, uh, they, they download, and then the email comes in and people say what they like or didn't like or who they'd like to have on the show. So there's definitely folks out there, and uh, uh, hopefully they will be hearing about this book and your other works and uh, follow up on those. Well, tell me a little bit about yourself. You and I have never had the opportunity to meet. Um, what uh, uh, do you write uh, Civil War books for a living, or do you have a, uh, a paying job? How does that work? Uh, actually, I'm probably one of the crazy people that ended up uh, quitting the day job to try to do this full time. My my background is in um, science. I had a, a master of science from the University of Wisconsin and worked in a in an intensive care unit at a at a local hospital here in Northern Virginia for about 17 years. And I wrote my first uh, four books while I was uh, during those uh, working years. So I would get up at four and write before I get the kids ready and then go to work. And uh, that that worked well for about uh, three books or so. But it, uh, something had to give. <laughs> so I'm taking a stab at uh, doing history now full time. Uh, yeah. So since the end of 2005, I've just been writing and doing uh, Civil War tours. And I think uh, I do tours. Uh, Occasionally with a, a mutual friend of ours, David Long. Oh yes, David, just down one floor down here. Uh, right, so at, at the... that's that's my connection to the university, um, and I also uh, do a lot of speaking um, on history subjects as well. But my that's... background is more mostly in the sciences. Well, the uh, the phenomenon continues. Then I would I would say a clear majority of the guests on Civil War Talk Radio who have written books are not. Uh, academic historians. They are people who write about history, but they were trained as scientists or, last week, uh, a lawyer. That's very common, occasionally a doctor. But there's what is it about this field that attracts so many people from other fields to write about it and doesn't attract good writing from within the profession? Uh, well, I don't know. Uh, I think there is some good writing Obviously, in, in academia, it's, it's, geared, it's geared a little differently, though. I think um, people that come from outside the field tend to, tend to try to appeal more to, a, to an outside audience. Perhaps that's the difference. Uh, but it's interesting because uh, I, I have uh, full respect for, for academic historians because my field was in nutritional biochemistry, and, of course, a lot of people that don't have a nutrition degree will write nutrition books, and uh, I would give them a... You know the jaundiced eye, knowing that their background wasn't in nutrition. So from my from my standpoint, I take I heed my own advice and make sure that uh, 
that if I'm writing about uh, something that uh, is outside my area of expertise, that I wasn't able to um, have enough close friends or uh, associates that uh, are in the field to be able to vet the material for me, I would I would uh, make an extra effort to seek it. So I think that's the um, that's the difference. Is I'm going to work a little bit harder to make sure that uh, that whatever I write gets clearance from the from the from those that are trained in history and military history in particular. Well, I, I, it, this, this was a topic I was discussing with students this morning in a, a public history class, how what, what the role of credentials is or ought to be in terms of history. And that you've, we, we took it from two extremes. On the one hand, you have a field like medicine where no person in their right mind would say everybody's opinion is equal, trained surgeon or guy who watched ER last night. Uh, you'd certainly want to go to the trained surgeon. Correct. But at the other extreme, you've got uh, modern politics. Uh, the election of 2008 campaign is underway. You've got uh, both parties pointing to the other side and saying, you've got an un- inexperienced candidate, and each party has nominated a candidate with certainly less experience than, than might be uh, the maximum. The argument being you don't need experience. Uh, you just need the right ideas. And that's all you need. There is, there's no degree to become a politician. There's no license. Right, right. Um, well, where does I, history fall I, between those? Yeah, and in history, I would say that um, the writer that comes from outside the field just has to have a good understanding of his or her limitations. I'm not going to write about um, global economy in the 1800s because that's that's outside that's outside my um, that's outside what I would be able to. Um, uh, to portray in any books with any uh, confidence or authenticity. But if I'm writing about, oh, let's say three days in the Shenandoah and have had previous works on the, on the Shenandoah Valley campaign, I pretty much have a, a history uh, of um, expertise in that subject, so I, I'm much more comfortable and confident writing about that as well. So um, I think that's the difference. It, and sometimes the backgrounds, even though there's no crossover, I mean, let's face it, what, what in the world would a, a biochemistry background do with history? It actually has to do, deal with the type of research you do. You learn um, to be very critical of, of source material, just like you would in a science field, and not to accept everything that you read and to make sure that you um, are able to get uh, um, confirming source material and and, uh, you know, kind of follow your own rules of guidelines like a good historian should to make sure that they aren't going to accept, um, you know, a reminiscence about the war from, uh, from somebody in 1928 if it refutes uh, three other people's version of the same incident written in between 1865 and 1871, that kind of thing. And, and I think that's a really good point. It, to, to bring up another local... Uh, professional issue here. There's a lot of talk these days about assessment uh, on campus and in the wider educational community, the No Child Left Behind concept. And this has us in the department and departments around the country thinking about how do you assess what we do? Our job is not to teach students facts. Uh, There's no common body of facts every historian knows. I don't know the names of all the kings of England off the top of my head. and I'm sure European historians might not know all the prime ministers of Canada and so on. We don't all memorize the same things uh, or anything, but we all do learn the skills you just described, the, uh, the critical reading, the ability to, to sift through sources. And how are you supposed to assess uh, 
that uh, using some kind of easily understood multiple choice style test. I think it's impossible, but there we are. That is a, that is a dilemma. But I, I, I guess in one end, the academics, of course, should be very um, um, suspect about things written by non-academics like myself. But at the same time, there should be at least a, um, some embracing of a, at least the, the increased interest uh, from outsiders. And I think because of the more uh, scrutinizing public, particularly with Civil War materials, since there's so much of it published, and of course in Lincoln scholarship too, that uh, the, for lack of a better word, the fluff pieces that maybe you used to be, be able to get away with writing um, a couple of generations ago isn't going to fly anymore. And I think from that end, at least the, um, the expectations of, of uh, the aficionados in the field won't accept garbage that's uh, being uh, written and produced. I, well, I think you're absolutely right. I think the quality of, of the work that the works I read for this show that it, are written sometimes by lawyers, doctors, biochemists uh, uh, is often very high uh, in, in terms of use of evidence and, and citation of sources. The, the, uh, and you're also right that the profession ought to be more embracing uh, and accepting of people doing this kind of thing. But it, it's it's a long-standing problem in the profession uh, why that isn't done more than it is. But let, let me ask, uh, let's go back into 1862 for a bit. Um, three days in the Shenandoah, which three days are these, and, and why did you choose them? Uh, the days are um, May 23rd, May 24th, and May 25th. I chose those days because I think that's the heart of the Valley campaign. Those are the days I... I maintain it had a, the greatest influence on Union and Confederate strategy in the in the Virginia theater of operations. So, I've written before about um, events in the Shenandoah Valley. I did something for Time Life Books about ten years ago, and I also wrote a book about <clears throat> uh, the first battle of the campaign, a uh, battle called Kernstown. And I approached this one quite differently because um, because it had such a, a much greater influence. Uh, by and on the uh, opposing war departments, and I, would, uh, I decided to approach this book by not only looking at the tactical detail of the three days of fighting, which includes two days of battle and in the middle a day of, um, of movement and some small skirmishing. So in one end, the, the purpose of the book is to uh, provide what I think is the first um, extensive tactical detail about the battles of Front Royal and the Battle of Winchester, uh, but also to show that that middle day, the May 24th, had uh, a much greater impact on decisions made, uh, especially in the Union War Department and by uh, Commander-in-Chief Abraham Lincoln than I think has been previously um, appreciated. Well, if we look at the whole context of the war in May 1862, uh, of course, McClellan has the Army of the Potomac on the peninsula approaching Richmond, and uh, seemingly ready to capture the place, certainly getting closer slowly, very slowly, but getting there. And you've got another corps under uh, Irvin McDowell moving south from Washington uh, to, to put a, a pincers movement on Richmond. So it looks like the war is about to uh, reach a decisive point, and then these three days take place. So what happens here that, that, uh, that is so decisive in your view? You bring up a great point. If you look at uh, Abraham Lincoln had to have been um, cautiously optimistic when he was reviewing uh, McDowell's troops. You talked about Irvin McDowell. He had the Department of the Rappahannock 
um, uh, an army of just about 40,000 people, uh, soldiers, and about 80, 80 cannons, and that's, uh, that's the, the real firepower of that army. And they're supposed to join up with McClellan's massive army of the Potomac, which is uh, in the vicinity of 93 or 94,000 uh, in rank and file moving upon Richmond. And if you do link those two together, uh, you have an amazing firepower uh, in an army that's uh, about to capture the Confederate capital. And so when he reviews that army, he's getting good news from all theaters of operation, um, both in the Western um, uh, theater with, uh, with um, uh, movements along the Mississippi River, in the Alleghenies, the Battle of Lewiston is starting to open up access to, uh, to a vital railroad to Richmond. So everything looks like it's going to be good news for him. And then all of a sudden, little operations in the Shenandoah Valley are going to change everything, uh, not because of what happens tactically on the battlefields. And if you look at the battles of Front Royal, for example, um, you're looking at a contest that maybe pitted a couple of thousand Confederate soldiers against uh, barely a thousand Union soldiers. Uh, and the Union force there was almost completely annihilated. It's a real small action when you compare it to the behemoths later in the war, like the Wilderness um, but that little action probably had a greater impact on, on strategy planning over the next two days um, than some of the, some of the much larger uh, battles of the Civil War. And the same thing with uh, the Battle of Winchester, which was a bigger contest than Front Royal, but nobody would ever call it a big battle compared to uh, what you see in 1863, 1864, and even later in 1862. So these battles do have a, a strategic meaning uh, beyond, as you say, what happens on the battlefield. Uh, I, I think one of the effective things in the book is the way the scenes uh, at the front, at the, at the in the Army headquarters, are interleaved with uh, scenes in Washington and sometimes Richmond uh, to show how the, the higher-level decision-makers are reacting or are inspiring these decisions. Uh, and I think that does help show that that there's a reaction here. Ultimately, you're, you're quite critical of Lincoln's decision in the aftermath of these battles, which, which are Union defeats, to send McDowell's troops into the valley. Right. And it, it, I'm glad you, you noticed about, um, about how we're panning back and forth from, from the War Departments to the theater, because the tactics that, were, that ja Stonewall Jackson, who's the Confederate general in the valley, he's not... He's not expecting the reaction that's going to occur from the War Department. His mission is to sweep away the Union commander, uh, Nathaniel Banks, and I think the, the wording of his dispatch from the Confederate War Department was, and if successful, drive him to the Potomac and create the impression as far as practicable that you design threatening that line. So it's, a, it's almost as if it's a decoy um, uh, mission of Jackson to clear the valley of, of the Union enemy that's in there, drive them to the Potomac River, and threaten that region just by showing up along the, the line of the river. And I think the, the effort there was, from the Confederate perspective, was to hold McDowell in place and prevent more reinforcements from going to McClellan. So that's the Confederate strategy. The Union strategy, of course, is to try to uh, combine forces and make them as strong as possible. So the fact that Lincoln... Um, and we could say this in hindsight, he clearly overreacted to the situation and, and not only held McDowell in place, but sent him, uh, sent him all the way to the Shenandoah Valley on a, on a wild and almost guaranteed to fail mission. 
uh, in an effort to uh, to bag Stonewall Jackson. But the the real effort appears from Lincoln's dispatches as we look at him in real time. Is I think he was I think he was concerned about the safety of Banks's army, and it's because of poorly worded dispatches that came into the War Department that had him confused and uh, Secretary Stanton confused into believing that Banks uh, was surrounded early in the day on May 24th when in actual, actuality he was uh, well north of his attackers and, and had an avenue to get across the Potomac River. So I think, uh, I think that led to the ultimate decision that Lincoln made. So the strategy of the Confederates was not the reaction that that actually benefited them more, which was to send McDowell to the Shenandoah Valley. That's that's why I'm critical of Lincoln in this because um, because he sent he sent an entire army that was earmarked um, to join McClellan. And I know uh, in hindsight, and certainly anybody can make this case, is that we know that McClellan's a pretty bad general when it comes to fighting battles, and he probably uh, may have found a way to waste those men if they came down to him, but. To this point in the campaign, he's slow, but he hasn't failed his commander yet in the Civil War. And in the morning, after the Battle of Front Royal, it's Lincoln telling McClellan um, that uh, despite what happened at Front Royal uh, the previous evening, that McDowell is still planning on uh, he's still planning on sending McDowell to join him. And what he tells McClellan, which I think is uh, really astonishing. Uh, coming from Lincoln and, and certainly goes against the grain of what we normally hear about those two, is Lincoln tells uh, McClellan, I wish you to move cautiously and safely. Gary, we're going to have to take a break here for just a moment and uh, interrupt and, and take a short break here on Civil War Talk Radio so we can get identified. We'll be back in just a moment with more about Three Days in the Shenandoah by Gary Eckelbarger when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. <laughs> 